I have a question for you. Do you know anybody that is unconventional? Oh, Mickey. We all know you, Mickey. <laughs> you know, maybe you have a friend that's unconventional or an acquaintance, or maybe you see an unconventional person in the mirror. Unconventional means not conforming to what is generally done. Unconventional people can be described as nonconformists, free spirits. They march to the beat of their own drum in certain areas of life. Here are a few unconventional people from history you might recognize. One unconventional person said, I have never failed. I have never failed. I have just found 10,000 ways that won't work. You know who said that? Thomas Edison. Another unconventional person said, the most difficult thing is the decision to take action. The rest is merely tenacity. Amelia Earhart. Another unconventional person said, be authentic and let them like you or not for who you actually are. Kobe Bryant. One more. This unconventional person said, wedding guests don't fast while they're celebrating with the groom. Who said that? Jesus, in our passage today. Jesus was as, as, as unconventional as they come. Jesus didn't say what people expected him to say. Jesus didn't do what people expected them to do. In our passage today, Jesus is going to get questioned about his unusual ways, and Jesus will explain that he did not come to do what is usual. He did not come to do what is generally done. Jesus came to do something that has never been done before. I know it's smoky, I know it's warm, but you picked a great night to come to church, and you picked a great time to stream with us, because this passage is spectacular. Let's pray together. Father, we, as we come before you, we just thank you for, for the gift of your son. And I, I pray, Lord, that 30 minutes from now, we will see Jesus as we've never seen him before. Just open our eyes and our ears to your truth, we pray. In Christ's perfect name, amen. Please turn to Luke chapter 5, verses 33 to 39. We're actually going to finish Luke chapter 5 today. While you're turning there, let's recall real quick what we did last week. Last week, with Pastor Drew, we saw Jesus call Levi, or Matthew, to come follow him. Remember, Levi was a tax collector. Tax collectors were considered like the worst of the worst in Jewish society. In those days, the only thing worse than seeing a tax collector coming your way is seeing two or more tax collectors coming your way. Levi left everything to follow Jesus. And Levi invited all his friends to come and meet Jesus at a reception at his house. So this house just filled up with tax collectors. Some religious leaders were there too. They were not on the guest list, but they were VIPs, which stood for very important Pharisees. So these religious leaders wanted to come because they just wanted to keep an eye on Jesus. The name Pharisee, means separated one, separated one. And the Pharisees separated themselves from most common people because the Pharisees believed most common people were religiously unclean. And now they found Jesus 
<laughs> dining in a house with every stinking tax collector in town. The Pharisees did not appreciate Jesus' unconventional ways. So they said to him, why do you eat and drink with sinners? Jesus answered, people who are well don't need a doctor. It's the sick who need a doctor. Jesus basically said to them, I have not come to isolate myself from sinners like you do. I have come to seek sinners and call them to repentance. Jesus, our Savior, did not come to reject sinners. Jesus came to invite sinners to God's throne of grace to receive mercy and the forgiveness of their sins. Now, this is where our passage end, ended last week, but this is not where the conversation ends because in our passage today, the conversation continues because Jesus is going to be asked another question about his un unorthodox ways. Let's read together Luke chapter 5, verses 33 to 39. And they said to him, the disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees also do the same, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, you cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? But the days will come, and when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. And he was also telling them a parable. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he will both tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled out and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wishes for new. For he says, the old is good enough. Our passage began with, and they said to him. So who is they? Who asked Jesus this question? If we turn to the book of Matthew or Mark, they have the same account of this, and we see that the disciples of John the Baptist have joined in the conversation. In Matthew 9, uh, verse 14, we read, Then the disciples of John, that's John the Baptist, then the disciples of John came to him, to Jesus, asking, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And then in Mark 2, 18, John's disciples were there with the Pharisees and they were fasting and they came to him and said, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but yours do not fast? The Pharisees and John the Baptist's disciples could not figure Jesus out. So they said, Jesus, while we're fasting, your disciples are getting fresh plates in the buffet line. What's going on? Why are you not behaving like we do? It's really a great question, a very fair question, because in Jesus' day, all godly Jews fasted. Men and women of God refrained from food for periods of time while they were grieving or while they sought the Lord for guidance or forgiveness. The Pharisees fasted to show off their self-righteousness, and John's disciples fasted because they were praying in anticipation of the coming of the Messiah. Their great question deserved a great answer. And Jesus gave them a great answer. In verse 34, Jesus said, you cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? Jesus asked them, guys, think with me for a minute. At a wedding feast, do the friends of the, what do the friends 
of the groom do at a wedding feast? Do they fast or do they feast? It's a rhetorical question. Because in Jesus' day, no one, no one ever fasted at a Jewish wedding feast. It just wasn't done. Everyone in town came with food and drink, and these wedding feasts could last for a week. And in fact, in ancient Jewish culture, joy, joy was considered more important during a wedding feast than any religious ritual. In fact, if a ritual got in the way or dis distracted from the joy of the ceremony or the joy of the feast, that ritual was set aside because joy was more important. So Jesus' answer to them made three things really clear. First, he said, the Pharisees are not the bridegroom, the Pharisees are not the Messiah, and neither is John the Baptist. But Jesus is the bridegroom. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. Jesus is the salvation of Israel and the world, and his presence in their midst is the reason for great rejoicing. But then Jesus says, in verse 35, but the days will come, and when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. Jesus says the days will come when his disciples absolutely will fast. But the reason they will fast is because he, the Messiah, the bridegroom, has been taken away. Did you notice that Jesus did not say that the bridegroom will leave? He said the bridegroom will be taken away. This means taken away by force. And about three years later, the Pharisees had Jesus arrested and crucified. So Jesus, the bridegroom, was indeed taken away. But one day in the future, perhaps very soon, Jesus, the bridegroom, will return for his bride, the church. And then we will all sit together at God's feast table, all of us. Revelation 19.9, great passage. Let me read it to you. Revelation 19.9, Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper. That's the wedding feast of the Lamb, and that's Jesus. And he said to me, These are true words of God. Brothers and sisters, we have a great feast to look forward to. When Jesus came into this world, he did not come to maintain the status quo. He didn't come just to do more ordinary stuff. Jesus came to usher in something new that had never been possible before. So Jesus now tells a parable to explain this. Jesus often used parables, which are little stories about everyday life, to help people better understand the truths of God. And in this case, the truth he wanted people to understand is his purpose. The parable here is actually three stories in one. One is a story about repairing clothes. The other is a story about storing wine. And the third is a story about tasting wine. And in each story, Jesus is showing that he has come to replace the old with something new. Jesus has come to change Israel's and the world's relationship with God forever. Let's read verses 36 to 39 together again. And he, Jesus, was also telling them a parable. Notice that each story begins with the word no one. 
these are actually kind of funny. I think the crowd in Jesus' day would have been chuckling a little bit because these are humorous stories. Jesus says, no one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he will both tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled out and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wishes for the new, for he says, the old is good enough. Let's talk about this first one, these old and new garments. Jesus starts by saying, no one, no one would have a tear in an old, raggedy old garment and think, wait, I got a good idea. I've got a brand new garment over here. I'm going to rip that thing up and make a patch for my old, dirty, stinky ruined robe. I, that's a great idea. I'm sure he got laughs from his audience, probably bigger than the laughs you just gave me for that. <laughs> many, many years ago, when I was a child in Sunday school, I remember our, a teacher teaching on this. And he said, and I remember him saying, telling us kids, he said, uh, no one would patch an old pair of jeans by cutting up their new jeans. This actually made sense in the 1960s. But today, people want tears in their pants. And if you buy brand new ones, they have rips in them already. So the jeans analogy has to be retired. It doesn't work anymore. It's too bad. It was a good one. Jesus says the patch of cloth from the new garment would be an obvious misfit on the old faded garment. And then Jesus makes another point that we find recorded in Matthew's gospel. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 16. Jesus says, but no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch pulls away from the garment and a worse tear results. If you sew a patch of new unshrunk cloth on an old garment, when it gets wet, that new patch will shrink dramatically as it dries and it will just pull all the stitching out of the old garment and make the hole you patched up much, 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 much worse. We have to understand something, though. Jesus is not gathering a crowd to give them a sewing lesson. This is not a sewing lesson. This is not why he came. He is telling them a parable, and a parable is a simple little story with a much deeper meaning. And here's the deeper meaning. When Jesus talks about the old garment, he's primarily talking about the law of Moses. Jesus did not come to put a patch on the law of Moses. Jesus did not come to add an amendment to the law. Jesus came to introduce a totally new relationship we can have with God that is not based according to our works of the law, but is based entirely on our faith in Jesus alone. So before we talk a little more about the new garment, let's talk about the old garment, the law. Why did God give his law to his people? Why did God give the law? In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 1 to 2, we have this great passage. Then the Lord said to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, this is key, this is what God wanted Moses to say, Say to them, you, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. God told the people of Israel they must be holy. And this means they must follow God's ways, not the ways of the world. Well, that raises the question, doesn't it? Well, God, what are your ways? We can see what the ways of the world are, but God, what are your ways? Well, 
God gave Moses a system of commandments and procedures for the people of Israel to follow. This became known as the Law of Moses or the Mosaic Law. The law told the people how to live in strict obedience to God. The law actually did two things. The law revealed the holy standards of God and the law revealed the depth of everybody's sin. Because no one in Israel and no one on earth then or now can possibly live up to God's standards. Paul actually explains this very well in Romans 3.20. Let's look at Romans 3.20. Paul writes, Because by the works of the law, no flesh, no one, will be justified in God's sight, in his sight. For through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law answers the age-old question of the human race. The age-old question is, am I good enough to get into heaven when I die? Have you ever asked that question? Am I good enough? Am I good enough to get into heaven when I die? When people wonder if they're good enough, they usually make a list of their strong points. And it goes something like this. They think, let's see, I should get into heaven, God, because, let's see, um, I've never killed anyone. I don't, I don't lie too much. I give money to the poor. I recycle. I go to church sometimes, maybe often. I believe God will let me in for all these reasons, especially if God grades on a curve. But you know what? God loves us so much that he never wants any of us to ever wonder or guess where we stand with him. So God gave us his law. He gave us his standard so we can see exactly what God expects from us. Remember, God said, you shall be holy. Holy means you shall be perfect and sinless because God is perfect and sinless. If we want God to accept us, we must never have an ungodly thought. We must never say or do any ungodly thing. Those are God's standards. He does not grade on the curve, which means none of us can get into heaven on our own. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of God's standards. All means all. Even you, even me. We all fall short. We, f- we cannot meet God's standards of perfection. So, nobody, nobody is good enough to get into heaven. Nobody. That's the bad news. The law reveals our sin and the fact that we are in a hopeless situation. But the good news is, the law also leads us to the only one, the one and only one who can save us. In fact, the law acts like a tutor in this regard. Have you ever needed a tutor when you were in school? Did you ever need a tutor? I needed a tutor to get through uh, high school algebra my senior year. You know who my tutor was? It's great. It was Mr. Robertson. That doesn't mean anything to you, but Mr. Robertson was also the algebra teacher. And he happened to live on my street. And it was really great to have the algebra teacher be my tutor. And I actually did pretty well in that class with his help. Well, the law is our tutor to help us understand that we cannot possibly save ourselves. 
So we need a savior who is Christ the Lord. In Galatians 3, 24 to 28, Pastor Drew quoted this for us last week. Let's look at it. Paul writes, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith in Jesus has come, we are no longer under a tutor. We are no longer under the law because Jesus has come. For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. All of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. This is the new garment that Jesus talked about. There is, in verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. Jesus came to do what we could never do. Jesus came to live the perfect, sinless life that God demands from us. Jesus lived that perfect and sinless life that we needed to have lived. Jesus, therefore, fulfilled the law on our behalf. Then Jesus died on the cross to be the one and only perfect sacrifice for our sins. Because of Jesus, because of Jesus, you and I can be fully accepted by God, not through our obedience to the law, but only through our faith. And Christ. So back to Jesus' parable. Jesus came to replace the old garment, that's the law, and offer us a new garment made of his righteousness. When we put our faith in Jesus, God looks at us. And do you know what he sees when God looks at us? God sees us clothed. He sees us covered in the righteousness of his son forever. In Christ, we don't have a patch of righteousness. In Christ, we are covered head to toe in his everlasting righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Great passage. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. This is why Jesus came. Jesus came to bring us something new, and make us something new. Jesus continues to explain this in the second part of his parable. Let's look at verses 37 to 38. Jesus says, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled out, and the skins will be ruined. But new skin, but new wine, sorry, new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. So let's look at this parable of the old and new wineskin. In Jesus' day, this sounds kind of gross, but wine was stored in the bladders and bladders made from animals. Doesn't sound too delicious to me, but it must have been okay. When the skins were new, they were soft and flexible. And the new wine, which was basically grape juice, when the new wine was poured into the wineskins over time, the wine fermented and that created the, caused the uh, wineskins to expand and stretch to their max. And then after the wine was poured out, the skins remained fully stretched out. I have pants like that. <laughs> no one, no one, sorry, no <laughs> should never go off my notes. No one would ever put new wine into old wineskins because when the new wine fermented, it would expand, but there was no more room for the, the skins to stretch, so they would burst open and the wine and the skins would be ruined. Jesus wants the people to understand 
that the law of Moses did exactly what it needed to do. The law was the old wineskin, and it stayed perfectly intact until the old wine was poured out. In other words, the law pointed everybody to Jesus. And when Jesus came, now that Jesus is here giving this parable, he is the new wine, and you can't pour the new wine back into the old wineskin. The rigid demands of the law cannot hold the freedom we have in Christ. This is what we celebrate every time we take communion together. Let's look at Luke uh, chapter 2, verses 19 to 20. This is a very familiar communion passage. And when Jesus had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, which was with wine, and after they had eaten, saying, This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. New covenant in my blood. The law is sometimes called the old covenant. A covenant is a contract or an abi- a binding agreement, this case, between God and us. The old covenant was based on strict, strict obedience to the letter of the law. Under the law, when the people of Israel sinned, and they sinned a lot, they had to make animal sacrifices. And they had to shed the blood of flawless, innocent animals to cover their sins over and over and over and over. Then Jesus came as the flawless Lamb of God to be sacrificed once and for all. And Jesus then ushered in the new covenant when he died on the cross for our sins. The new covenant or the new binding agreement with God is based on our faith in Jesus, not on the works of the law. Do you want to hear something fantastic? Of course you do. That's why you came to church. That's why you're out here in this smoky environment. And that's why you're watching. Okay, here's something fantastic. Jesus' sacrifice, when Jesus died on the cross, his sacrifice did not cover our sins like the animal sacrifices did. No. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross didn't cover our sins. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross removed, removed our sins completely. When we put our faith in Jesus, Jesus does not come in to cover our sin. Jesus comes in to take our sins away forever. Jesus came to shed his blood one time for all time, for all people, and for all sins. That, that is the miracle that we celebrate every time we take communion together. Jesus said the new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. What is the fresh wineskin? What is the fresh wineskin that can contain Jesus? The fresh wineskin is God's amazing grace. The old wineskin was the law. The new wineskin is grace. Grace means God's unmerited or unearned favor. Grace means God does wonderful things for us that we do not deserve. God's grace God's grace is what allows God to give us eternal life simply by us trusting in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 8 to 9. You probably know this passage. Ephesians 2, 8 to 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. By the grace of God, 
by the amazing grace of God, the moment you and I, the instant you and I put our faith in Jesus, we became instantly accepted by God. Instantly accepted by God. We became completely accepted by God, and we became forever accepted by God. So here's a question that I want to ask you because I've been struggling with this for the time I've been studying this passage, so I want to share the joy with you. So here's the question I want you to think about as we think about the grace of God. How many times, how many times has God forgiven you for something you said or thought or did? How many times has God forgiven you for something you said or thought or did? How many times has God forgiven you today, if you know that number? How many times has God forgiven you this week? How many times has God forgiven you this year? How many times has God forgiven you in your lifetime? When we truly stop to realize and remember how much God has forgiven us through his grace, shouldn't we respond by extending grace to those around us? Realizing how much God has forgiven us, shouldn't we just extend grace to everyone we come across? When God's grace is present in our lives, we will have a spirit of openness and forgiveness. We will have an attitude of compassion. And we'll have words of kindness and love for each other. But when grace is absent in our lives, there's a lot of finger pointing and a lot of hostility. There's an attitude of criticism and words of bitterness and distrust for each other. By the grace of God, when we trust in Jesus, we can become everything God created us to be. So what has God created us to be? What has God created us to be? Ephesians 2.10. We'll stay in Ephesians for a moment. Great, great truth here. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. God created us to be his workmanship. You know what that means? God created us to be his personal works of art. Do you think of yourself as a work of art? I do. I think of you as works of art. When, God, when, when we think about what God created us to do, he's created us as wonderful personal works of art in his studio to do all the wonderful things that God handpicked for you and me to do. But we have to remember, we are all works in progress. None of us are finished works of art yet. Some of you are close, but nobody is finished yet, so please, please, let's be all really patient with each other. Let's look at the third, final part of Jesus' parable. Verse 39, he sums it up by saying, And no one, after drinking old wine, wishes for new. For he says, the old is good enough. Jesus is saying that the new wine will not appeal to everyone. In fact, many will reject the new wine because they prefer the old wine. Jesus is talking about basic human nature here, isn't he? Think about this. When, when you are presented with a new idea, do you immediately accept that new idea? Or do you tend to sit back and wait long enough for the new idea to become an old idea and then you accept it? That's what I do. Jesus came to earth to bring, a, bring us the great the wonderful news that we're no longer required to do the works of the law. Jesus came to make salvation available to anyone and everyone who trusts in the work that Jesus did on our behalf. Yet, 
this greatest, word, greatest news that has ever been given to the world, many people will reject it. Why? Because, as Jesus said, the old wine is good enough. People then and now find comfort. They find purpose. They find self-affirmation in a system of religious rules and spiritual rules and regulations. Many people just really want to have boxes to check so they know if they're accepted by God or not. But Jesus says, no, no, no. Just believe in me and I promise, I promise you that you are accepted by God forever. Just believe in me. And many will answer and say, mm, that's too simple, Jesus. You knew, your, your new wine is not complex enough. That's not for me. I can't swallow that. When I first heard about Jesus, I was nine years old. In Sunday school, I heard that God wants to come and live in my heart forever. God wants to come and live in my heart every day of my life. And then when I die, I get to go to this amazing place called heaven. And all I have to do is believe in his son. I was a little too young to compare, compare God's offer to wine. But I do vividly remember telling my mom, it's like God was offering me free chocolate cake for life. And all I have to do is believe in his son. And you know what? I, I jumped at that deal. I jumped at that deal. Have you? If you have not put your faith in Jesus tonight, or if you're not sure, our prayer team's going to be right over there in the corner, and they would love to answer any questions you have. And I'll be around too. And I'd love to speak with you. Or if you're watching online, please just call or write the church and someone will speak to you. Okay, you're not going to get off easy. I have a homework assignment. It's a good one. I hope you all do it. Okay, homework for this week. Would you please set aside time every day this week? You need to write this down because you're not going to remember. Please set aside time every day this week to think about our unconventional Savior? Will you do that? Spend a few minutes even, a minute, two minutes, every day this week, just thinking about our unconventional Savior. Think about how God sent Jesus to do for you what you could never do for yourself. Jesus lived the sinless life that we were supposed to live, and then he died on the cross to remove our sins forever. Let's let that really sink in this week. Let's think about how much we've been forgiven this week. So maybe we'll see if that helps us increase the grace we extend to other people this week. Maybe that'll be our best week in extending grace to others. Community groups. If, you're, if you are a community group leader or if you're in a community group, here's your assignment, please. Be sure to talk about what it means to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And what it means to have full and complete acceptance by God, not through works, but through grace and faith. If we spend just a minute or two every day, seven days this week, thinking about Jesus, let's see how that changes our attitude and our outlook by the end of the week. I bet you will be surprised. Will you pray with me? Father, um, how do, we, how do we possibly find words to thank you for Jesus? Lord, I, 
you promised me chocolate cake forever. <laughs> and it's been well over 50 years. And Father, you have not, you have not done anything but over-delivered every day that I have been alive. And I'm so grateful. And Lord, all of us here love, love your son. And sometimes, Father, we uh, maybe struggle a little to extend the grace that you have so lavished upon us. And I just pray, Father, this week, each one of us would spend this time just looking at you, just trying to gaze into your eyes and picturing what it was like for you to come and live the perfect life we could never live. And then you gave yourself up for our sins so that we could be clothed in your righteousness forever. Lord, I pray that excites us. I pray we never get over that. I pray we never take it for granted. And we thank you in Jesus' saving name. Amen.